The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Investors bracing for today's September inflation report and what it could mean for Fed policy and Fed Chairman Jay Powell and that playbook. In Washington, D.C., the White House scrambling to contain the unexpected fallout from its decision to curb China trade with chips. Now another company is issuing a warning to its shareholders. OPEC is firing back yet again over allegations with its siding with Russia amid its latest output cut. This as crude bubbles back to near 90 bucks a barrel. Plus, call it the Bank of England blame game. New comments this morning over what's been seen as a true failure of fiscal policy. And then later on, the activists are not done yet with one struggling retail chain. It's Thursday, October 13th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. So let's kick off your Thursday morning with U.S. equity futures right now as the S&P looks to avoid a seven-session losing streak and bounce off its lowest close since November of 2020. Futures right now indicating some modest gains at the opening bell, akin to what we saw, remember, in yesterday's session where things were generally positive. The Dow's implied higher by roughly 140 points. The S&P higher by about 15 and 23 for the Nasdaq. So a little bit more muted for the Nasdaq as opposed to this time 24 hours ago. But still, we saw green yesterday at certain points that then turned into modest red by the time the closing bell happened. Checking on the bond market right now, yields, of course, very much in focus as the 10-year drifts a little bit back towards that 4% level. Currently, we are seeing the 10-year benchmark Treasury note yield 3.91%, the two-year note yield 4.31%, and the 30-year long bond 3.89% currently in today's trade. Now, in the oil market, crude oil prices took a dip yesterday on some of those big economic concerns. Right now, we are seeing a bit of a bounce back. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude, $87.93, up about 66 cents, three quarters of 1% advance there. Similar percentage advance for ice print crude futures, $93.25, the last trade there. And within cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ether prices still watching what's happening with that nineteen dollars to $20,000 range. Right now, we are seeing red pretty much across the board in cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin prices down about two-thirds of 1%, $19,010 the last trade. Ethereum, $1,278 and change, down 1.5% there as well. All of this is happening ahead of today's big September inflation report. Economists are expecting consumer price gains to have slowed slightly last month from 8.3% year-on-year to just a little over 8% now. It's still very bad. We'll speak with former Atlanta Fed President Dennis Lockhart about what today's report could mean for Powell's rate hike strategy and playbook. We'll speak to him later on this hour. But first, let's get a check on the overnight action in Asia. Mostly red, as you can see there, with Hong Kong and South Korea falling more than 1%. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong down nearly 2%. 
Trade is uh, getting started and kind of going in Europe right now. We're in the early hours of it right now. GP, German CPI data out this morning, up 10% year on year, the highest in 70 years. So as we spin that globe over to Europe, it's speckled mostly green right now, but fractional gains and losses. The German DAX up one half of 1%. The FTSE 100 in the UK just about flat on the session. The CAC in France up about two-tenths of 1%. Let's stick with that European trade and an apparent Bank of England blame game shaping up over last week's fiscal policy breakdown and emergency central bank action. Juliana Tattlebaum is standing by in our London newsroom with the latest. Juliana, good morning. Dom, good morning. While the volatility in UK bond markets continues, the Bank of England ramped up its gilt purchase operations on Wednesday as markets reacted to Governor Andrew Bailey's insistence that pension funds have until Friday to rebalance their positions. The yield on 30-year paper breached 5% for the first time since the UK government's mini-budget. Daily purchases came to £4.4 billion, bringing total buys since the central bank expanded its intervention to include linker bonds on Tuesday to nearly £8 billion. That's more than the first nine days' worth combined. Our sister channel, Sky News, asked the U.K. Chancellor of the Exchequer, Quasi Quarteng, on the fiscal side, what would happen on Friday when the Bank of England's guilt-buying program ends. Tell me, what, what happens oh, yeah. after Friday? What happens after Friday when the Bank of England stops buying bonds? What's the matter for the governor? Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't comment on that. It's a matter for the government, surely. Dom, so as you can see there, there is a bit of a blame game happening now. The Bank of England being forced to react to the market fallout from the U.K. government's fiscal plans, in particular those unfunded tax cuts. All right, Juliana Tattlebaum, I, I wonder, though, with Quasi Quarteng, in, in essence, he's like their version, the U.K. version of our Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen over here. This is very much a political side of the conversation and argument with Andrew Bailey being more like, of course, what happens with our Jay Powell over here. What is that dynamic like right now? We talk about very much the independence that Fed Chair Jay Powell operates with on this side of the Atlantic. How much will politics play into this conversation with regard to what's going to happen if we don't see some kind of stability happen after this move by the Bank of England to halt its, its emergency proceedings? It's a great question, Dom. And at the moment, um, the Bank of England maintains its independence, but they are being forced to act as a result of the fiscal policies being put forth by Quasi Quarteng and the UK government. As we've heard from several um, organizations, economic organizations around the world, it is a difficult thing to have fiscal policy and monetary policy working against each other. On the fiscal side, you've got the government trying to provide support to the economy and focus on growth. Growth, growth, growth. Is, that is what the UK government is all about. But on the monetary policy side of things, the Bank of England is trying to control inflation. So there's this very difficult balance, and you are seeing fiscal and monetary policy act out of step with each other. And that's why we're in such a difficult position right now. All right, Juliana Tettelbaum, live in London with the latest there on the Bank of England and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. We appreciate it. Back home here, investors are still grappling with the U.K. policy crisis and what it could mean for markets stateside. Our Brian Sullivan spoke with one pension fund manager in charge of more than $300 billion. Brian. Dom, thank you very much, and good morning, everybody. We are very pleased to be joined once again by Christopher Ailman. He is the CIO of Calsters. Uh, Chris, an incredibly important. It's always great to have you on. I think this is an incredibly important time 
given everything that is going on, not only in the, the equity and bond markets here, but in the UK and globally as well. So, so welcome very much. I want to start off with what's happening in the UK. Their market and some of the way they invest are not exactly the same as ours. Do you fear any kind of a spillover or contagion risk from what's happening there to hit the US bond and or stock or debt markets? Well, Brian, it's hard to predict uh, policy errors, especially catastrophic ones. Um, I'm not fearful that we're going to have a, a carryover. We did look at the immediate impact and the secondary and even tertiary. We've all learned that after 08. You know, when people use leverage, it cuts both ways. And these liability-driven investments that they used were leveraged bonds. And so when that market moved so rapidly, and as well as the deadline, it did cause some forced sales. And when you got to come up with collateral right away, uh, liquidity just disappears. So it wasn't just the first-hand effect, but the second-hand. We think the banks will weather this. They're in much better shape than they were before. Uh, and I don't think it's going to carry over into the USA or other locations. Now, that said, you just never know in this environment what else is, what other shoe is going to drop. I'm going to get to that shoe in just a second, but I want to go back to your answer. Do you think there was a catastrophic policy mistake here? Well, uh, uh, an incre- a, a very significant one, maybe not catastrophic, but, uh, you know, anytime that you have to, the government has to do an absolute U-turn the next day. And I guess they didn't want to use that phrase. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, liability-driven investing is fine and it works except when you have rapidly rising interest rates and then your currency falls apart. Uh, And those two things happened within a two-day period because of comments from the central bank and comments from the government. So, you know, policymakers created a firestorm that really hit the UK pensions and therefore causes them anytime you have to raise liquidity uh, fast then prices are going to suffer all around the place. And it's hard to sell private assets. It's hard to raise money when you suddenly have to. You know, we go back to the contagion risk. And again, I haven't had anybody like yourself that has said, yeah, it's a definite contagion. Likely no, but we just don't know what's sort of under the hood. And I was, you know, we go back to these acronyms from 2008, CLOs, CDOs, collateralized loan obligations. I saw a story on Wednesday, Chris, that some of the, the CLOs in London were getting hit because they have these requirements about how much can be certain types of debt. And when things get downgraded, things have to be forcibly sold. Isn't that the kind of potential black swan that that, that nobody really thinks about, which is we don't know what people hold and we don't know what they're not allowed to hold. And if we see a lot of debt rating downgrades, either there, Europe, or maybe here, there seems like there's some, maybe tiny, but some trigger risk, I would imagine. It's not zero. It's not zero, Brian, but I think the risk of an 08 is literally uh, down in the 4%, 5% range. It's a very low likelihood. Remember, 08 was a 1 in 70-year event. Not 1 in 100, but probably a 1 in a 70-year event. That doesn't mean it can't happen again, but I think they put safeguards in place. Any time in history, you have rapidly rising interest rates. And let's remember, the U.S. Fed's raising by three quarters of a point. That's huge. Historically, we were always one quarter and a half yeah. was big. 
Now you've had multiple three-quarter point rises where the, the level of rates are up to 4%. It's going to squeeze any kind of leverage. Anybody that borrowed short is now squeezed on that. And whenever you have to raise collateral quickly, then you get distressed pricing and that lowers the value of everything. So uh, I think the banks have, have passed the stress test. Those are important regulations put in to keep U.S. and European banks in a better shape. Yeah. Doesn't mean we might not have trouble, but I, I think we're in for a long, tough recession. Uh, I don't know if I agree with Jamie Dimon in a in a another 20% drop, but 10% from here in the US, because I think earnings are gonna come down. And we're seeing that starting this week. You think the market is still, even though multiples have come down a little bit, the E and PE has come down. You expect it sounds like to go down even more, which means it sounds like you think that multiples need to come down more. Well, in terms of the S&P 500, Brian, I think there is a risk that we could test the lows of 3250. Uh, we may bounce uh, and we've held 3500, so we'll see. Uh, but we've got, you know, three weeks of earnings coming. So that's a long reporting period. And the words, the, the forward outlook of the CEOs is going to be important uh, because they've actually been a lot more negative than yeah. the market. Yeah, and we're going to wait and see. Uh, obviously, uh, some I don't think I've ever heard you, Chris, in our 15 years of interviewing together, say that you think we could fall another 10%. Um, you know, scary stuff there. Very quickly, before we let you go, you guys have been leaders and sort of pioneers in many ways in ESG investing. Lately, there's been kind of this ESG backlash, this treasurer of South Carolina's pulling money from BlackRock. What do you make of this sort of uh, almost... Um, partisan fight when it comes to pension funds on this topic. Yeah, it's disheartening, Brian, to me, because I view that ES and G, while the initials have certainly become uh, political fire, uh, they're really just long-term business risks. And it's focusing in, as a long-term investor, I want companies to make money over 10 to 20 to 30 years, not just over the next 90 days. And I think these are people, you know, natural reactions to what's going to be a huge change in the next 20 years is we really have to dramatically change our energy resources and how we get energy. And that means there'll be some winners and losers. And unfortunately, in this environment in the USA, you see extreme rhetoric. I, I think smarter people will look at this from a long-term perspective and recognize this is a mega trend that's going to take place. Uh, you're going to have stronger storms, more aberrant weather, as well as the need to change our energy resources over the next 20 years. So it's not just overnight and it's not just a change, but uh, I'm sorry that it's getting caught up in a political fight. Uh, pensions are our trust funds and you attack them from a fiduciary standpoint of investing for the long term mm -hmm. and paying attention to risks. All right. Our thanks to Brian Sullivan and Cowster's chief investment officer, Christopher Aylman. Let's now get to another one of our top stories and ongoing fallout from last week's OPEC meeting. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning. Well, Saudi Arabia is pushing back on allegations. OPEC plus sided with Russia during last week's decision to slash oil output. Output. The Saudi government saying the move was in no way influenced by its stance on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, despite claims from the White House. The Saudi response coming as the Biden administration is reportedly growing concerned that its plan to cap Russian oil prices 
could backfire in the wake of the OPEC supply cut and cause prices to spike. Now, still, according to the report, the proposal remains the best choice among bad options to curb Russia's oil revenues, even if its implementation would mean retaliation from Moscow and more European supply disruptions, Dom. All right, Sylvain Henao with the latest there on OPEC. Thank you very much. When we come back on the show, a preview of today's inflation report and what it could mean for Powell's policy playbook. Former Atlanta Fed President Dennis Lockhart is here to weigh in on the conversation. Plus, new concerns over China's chip problem as the U.S. moves to cut it off from key cutting-edge technology. The stock's getting hit in the fallout coming up ahead. And later on, a major hurdle cleared for former President Trump's Twitter clone, Truth Social. That's sending that stock higher. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange to a developing story and one we've been following all week long the Biden administration reportedly scrambling to tackle unintended consequences of its new export restrictions on advanced computer chip technology to China, ones that could inadvertently harm the entire semiconductor supply chain. To help ease concerns, South Korea's SK Hynix reportedly says it got approval to keep receiving goods for its factories in China without an additional license, while Taiwan Semiconductor, TSMC, and Samsung have each secured a one-year license for their facilities. But the shocks keep coming. The Wall Street Journal reporting U.S. suppliers, including KLA Corporation and Lamb Research, are halting operations and pulling staff out from China's top memory chip maker, YMTC. KLA, Lamb, and AMAT, Applied Materials, earn about 30% of their revenue from that greater China region. And then check out shares of that so-called applied materials trade we just mentioned. The chip equipment maker warning revenues will miss forecasts for this quarter and next as well, all because of the new export rules that went into effect this week. That's a lot to digest. Let's talk more about this now with Ben Harburg, managing partner of MSA Capital, a private equity and venture capital firm that's based in Beijing, China. Uh, Ben, we knew that there were going to be ripple effects, but now this could have a very damaging effect on this industry, one that we have put so much focus on, even with our CHIPS Act here in the U.S. What exactly is the current state of play in your mind for whether or not these computer chip companies can keep operating the way that they do or may have to change their entire business paradigm? 
if if truly they are cut off from accessing the China market indefinitely, and as you said, really the the only salve provided for them was this one year uh, kind of respite, as well as perhaps some of the uh, cost offsets, revenue offsets, R and D development offsets that could come out of the hundred billion dollar Chips Act. Uh, they will be uh, indefinitely damaged. Uh, their revenues will be indefinitely uh, restricted. There is there is no light at the end of the tunnel because there is no other market like China that's growing at the pace it is in terms of absorbing U.S. chips at the volume that it is. Um, and so regardless of whether they're off, able to offset things in the short term, this will irreparably damage their revenue potential in the long term. This is an interesting move here because... For China and the U.S., and, and some have called it the, this iteration, this generation's Cold War, so to speak, in some way, right, the, the, the next big enemy, we have been in a technological battle back and forth between China and the U.S. for quite some time. And all you have to do is look at the market and, and the, I guess, the industry for supercomputing. Every single year to two to three, they, they jockey back and forth between which country, the U.S. or China, has the fastest or bigger bank of supercomputers, and the chips that need to power them are key. So is this the right move in your mind by the U.S. government if this is a technological war against China? I think it's not. I, I think that it can provide a short-term uh, comfort that, uh, that in, in this case, America can extend its lead, which it has maintained for the last several decades ahead of China in development of supercomputing capabilities and advanced technologies. But in the long term, this cannot hold China back. And if anything, by forcing companies to choose markets, by restricting the R&D budgets of American companies, by forcing American nationals working for Chinese chip companies to renounce their citizenship and return back to either Chinese nationals or take a third party citizenship in an effort to avoid these types of sanctions. We are ultimately irreparably damaging our growth potential as a market. And we are disconnecting ourselves from the one other market that could really match us in terms of growth and consumption in the long term, and we will be left with a much smaller world to trade and operate. And the reason why the Biden administration, I mean, this this seems to be bipartisan in tone and nature, right? The the same kind of thing that we're trying to achieve here is the same kind of thing that the Trump administration tried to achieve with its uh, rules with China. The Biden administration is kind of following through on some of those themes and broader macro issues as well. Is this a situation now where the U.S., is trying to, in essence, curb China's growth in a certain area because it could become a national security threat. You mentioned the long term. The long term here could also be a national security concern, could it not? There's absolutely a national security concern here. It is, it's, it's been well articulated. Historically, from the American side, a lot of the actions taken, particularly with the last administration, were with regard to protecting American IP, Uh, preventing theft of trade secrets. Uh, These actions are very structured and systematic and are clearly defined to slow China's rise. Um, And the Chinese will have no choice but to take actions as well. And China, as you know, is a massive exporter of technology today into the United States across all layers of our tech stack. Uh, They will be forced to take retroactive uh, action as well. Um, as, and likewise, we, we will see this accelerated splintering and decoupling of the two markets 
So in the long term, um, this will damage the upside potential of the American chip industry, um, and it will damage our capability to find new markets for our innovations and technologies. Ben, we've been showing all of our viewers and listeners on SiriusXM right now, what we're, we're showing a lot of chip charts, a lot of companies here. This particular move, are you optimistic that chips can still be invested in given the massive sell-off we've seen? In the long, I, I think it's going to be a challenging investment. I don't see where the growth will come for these businesses. They will be able to avoid some of these sanctions for the next year, uh, but Europe won't be able to absorb these. Uh, America won't be able to absorb them. And so ultimately, the, the markets will struggle to find, and these companies will struggle to find new growth potential for their chips. All right. Ben Harburg in Beijing for us. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Still on deck for the show, the latest installment of CNBC's Rising Risk series. We take a look at coastal communities, billions in lost tax revenue, and how major storms like Hurricane Ian that we just witnessed are making things worse. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. All right, as we head out to break, check out what's happening right now with U.S. futures. The Dow is implied higher by 160 points. The S&P higher by 19. The S&P higher by roughly 33 points. Now, remember, we saw this yesterday, only to see marginal losses at the closing bell. Now, throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating teammates, contributors, business leaders, our own colleagues here. Here's Ulta Beauty and Univision board member Giselle Ruiz. Latinos are bringing even more new energy to our country. They're the fastest growing segment and a fuel for growth in nearly every industry you can think of. And we're not slowing down. So what's important for you to think about is how am I unlocking the power of this very important and significant community? Being a Latina, everything there is about you is an absolute gift. It's a competitive advantage the way that I think about it. So never hold back from being who you are and offering the perspective that has shaped you your entire life. That's the real competitive advantage. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan. Let's get right to the markets this Thursday morning ahead of that big consumer price index report. Futures right now pointing towards modest gains at the opening bell. The Dow implied higher by 177 points. The S&P higher by 21 and the Nasdaq higher by about 44. Turning to the bond market now, yields ticking higher, heading back towards that 4% level for the 10-year benchmark U.S. Treasury note. Now just slightly lower, a hair below 3.9%, 4.31% for the two-year note yield. Let's get a check on some of your morning's top stories here. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hi, Dom. Well, Kohl's facing renewed pressure from one activist investor 
calling for changes to the retailer's board. According to the Wall Street Journal, McCallum Advisors, which has a roughly 5% stake in Kohl's, is calling on the company to replace three or more long-serving directors, including its chairman. The journal says the hedge fund cites Kohl's failed sales talks earlier this year and its struggling stock price for its latest demand. McCallum held unsuccessful talks with Kohl's over the past few months on an agreement on potential board changes and has told the retailer it will run another proxy fight next year if no agreement is reached. Shares are up 2% in the pre-market. Teva Pharmaceuticals' ongoing shortage of Adderall is reportedly expected to roll into early next year. According to Bloomberg, citing U.S. regulators, it may not be until March when the shortage eases, compared to the two or three months the company suggested last week. The drug has been in short supply since August, with demand at an all-time high. And Apple workers in Oklahoma are set to begin a vote later today on whether to unionize. Now, if the measure passes, it would mark the tech giant's second unionized location in the U.S. Meanwhile, Amazon workers at the company's warehouse in Albany will continue their voting today on whether that location should unionize. That voting process is expected to wrap up early next week, Dom. All right, Silvana Hinao, thank you for those headlines. Investors now bracing for the latest read on consumer prices with the September CPI report due out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. Expectations are for the reading to remain red hot with a jump of more than 8% in September from a year ago. If you strip out food and energy, that figure is expected to rise 6.5% still. That's an uptick from the previous month. That reading, seen as a linchpin for the Fed and its rate hike strategy. Speaking last night, Federal Reserve Governor Michelle Bowman joining the chorus of central bank voices saying she continues to favor large increases in interest rates to tamp down inflation. For more now on the CPI reading and the Fed's response, let's bring in Dennis Lockhart, former Atlanta Fed president. Uh, Dennis, this is this is a very aggressive rate hike campaign that the Fed has embarked on in response to a very aggressive inflationary environment that we're in. So tell us in your mind, is there anything that can happen with today's CPI print that will change the Fed's planned trajectory for rates? I doubt it. I I really doubt it. Um, first First, I doubt that the inflation numbers we see today will be a big departure from what we've been experiencing. I don't think there will be a a breakout to the to lower inflation or a breakout to significantly higher inflation. And even if there were, it's uh, essentially one month's data. And I think the Fed is pretty committed to the rate path they're, they're on. They want to get to a situation where uh, they can pause and see uh, a, a whole series of improvements in the inflation picture and that's not likely, uh, you know, to be based on one month alone. So, Dennis, if that's the case, if you look at the data and you're telling us that they're going to wait and see when they can kind of take that pause to assess what kind of implications there are, there is always this conventional wisdom that rate hikes act with a lag, right? That it could be 6, 12, 18, maybe even more months before we start to see the real effects of that one rate rise play in. So at that point, then, when can the Fed pause to say, hey, let's take a look and see if this stuff is actually working or not? As I see it now, I think the pause would come conceivably uh, in the first half of next year, early next year. 
I think they'll carry through with what we saw in the September uh, summary of economic projections with uh, maybe 100 to 100 and a quarter more rate hikes between now and year end. So uh, uh, aggressive moves at both, although they could dial back in December. Maybe one more early in the year. And then it would seem to me that depending on the data, always depending on the data, they uh, would be in a position to pause and sort of see how the medicine actually performs. There's been a lot of talk uh, uh, about this, Dennis, about this idea that the U.S. economy is trying to navigate a very, very narrow path towards what people call a soft landing. That is to say, a, an economy that doesn't go deeply into recession, but, but can still kind of cool things off a bit. Do you think that there is a risk now that the Fed policy that's been embarked on is a policy misstep, that we've gone too far too fast and that we could be doomed towards a hard landing or worse in this economy? I think you have to include that scenario in a range of scenarios that includes uh, a, a softish landing, to use Jay Powell's term. Uh, but also, there, this is not an exacting science. It's not uh, a policy setting in these circumstances. It's not something that you can just nail perfectly. And, I, and there very definitely is a risk that they could oversteer. So, so this, is, this is also a big deal for sure, because in that economic context, the Fed's dual mandate in, involves both in, uh, employment or unemployment, as well as price stability. Price stability is, is arguably the, the biggest concern right now. If you look at the overall picture as you weigh it as a, as a former central banker who, who made policy decisions, if you had to choose, if you had to, between the jobs picture and the inflation picture, is there a reason why the Fed should treat one more importantly, significantly than the other? Yeah, a long-standing debate even within the, uh, the FOMC room as to whether the two objectives of the dual mandate are actually, uh, you know, in all circumstances actually equal. Uh, clearly, inflation, if allowed to seep into the uh, economy and become persistent with expectations feeding it, is an insidious kind of economic development that you just can't let happen. So not only are they putting a priority at this moment on inflation, I think they will do what they have to do to make sure that we're not in an inflationary era for the next decade or more. I only ask the question right now because, Dennis, there's a big debate on Main Street right now about whether or not jobs are more important than inflation or vice versa. So this is certainly something a lot of folks in America, no matter what part of the income spectrum they're on, will watch. Dennis Lockhart, former Atlanta Fed president, thank you very much. We hope to talk to you again soon, sir. Good. Thanks, Dominic. All right. Coming up on the show, how rising seas are leading to financial devastation for coastal communities' tax bases. It's a revenue problem now. But first, as we head to break, a check on some of this morning's big money movers. Shares of Toshiba jumping in Japan on a report a local consortium is exploring a potential buyout bid worth roughly $19 billion. That group has been given preferred bidding status in the second round of an auction for the electronics giant. Those shares, again, up 7% in Japanese trade. Victoria's Secret is on the rise after the retailer says it expects third quarter profits to be closer to the higher end of its previous forecasts. 
The chain does say sales are projected to fall in the high single digits as previously expected, signaling consumers continue to spend less on lingerie and other types of clothing. And shares of Digital World Acquisition Corp, DWAC, they're spiking up 9.5%, 10%. That's the SPAC, planning to take former President Donald Trump's media ventures public. Google has approved Truth Social, Trump's social platform, to be listed in the Google Play Store, its app store, after it agreed to follow content moderation guidelines. Truth Social has been available through Apple's app store since February. Digital world acquisition up 10% right now. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The cleanup continues in Florida after Hurricane Ian, and eventually there will be a massive reconstruction effort. But some residents may not return, and that could mean big losses for the local tax base, something that has already happened in other disaster-stricken areas. Our own Diana Olick looks at the potential future losses in her continuing series on the rising risks from climate change. The destruction from Hurricane Ian was so profound that some home and business owners say they won't rebuild, they won't return. We don't even know if we're going to be able to rebuild. We've lost everything. That could mean a huge hit to the local property tax base when it needs revenue most. Researchers at Climate Central looked at hardest-hit Lee County, Florida, which includes Sanibel Island, and found that while just under a quarter of the county's land was below the roughly seven-foot storm tide from Ian, it represents half of the county's assessed tax land value because coastal properties are so pricey. The tax revenue associated with Ian-affected properties could be at least $314 million. In Florida, they give us a picture of what the future will look like. On a national level, Climate Central looked not at storm surge, but at sea level rise, and found that by 2050, within the span of a 30-year mortgage, close to 650,000 properties are projected to be at least partially submerged at high tide. They represent over $35 billion in current tax assessment value. The first impression I had was, my Lord, we're set up to lose by 2050, which is not that far away, an area almost the size of New Jersey. By the end of the century, that rises to more than a million properties with assessed values of more than $110 billion. A potential loss of a home, of course, is devastating to a homeowner, but it's also uh, a problem for our local communities because we run our local government and especially our schools off of property taxes. Something E. Lawrence White had to contend with in Mantaloking, New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy. He became mayor there in 2019. Our assessment right before Sandy was $1.6 billion with a B. Instantly, um, Sandy came in late October uh, and the damage was obviously horrific and our assessment went down approximately uh, 30 to 33%. Mantaloking rebuilt using government grants, but it may be on borrowed time. If there were to be another one here, um, I think a lot of people would leave and not come back. 
Now, we've all seen the pictures from Florida, but we're also seeing homes fall into the ocean in North Carolina. No storm, just high tide. Sea levels are projected to rise by about a foot in the next 30 years, about as much as they did in the past century. And all that tax revenue could be lost right when it's needed most to build protections like seawalls or floodgates. Dom? So, Diana, it seems like government keeps coming in and funding all of these reconstruction efforts on the coasts, like even here in the Northeast after Hurricane Sandy. I, I was a p- part of that. I, I, we saw some damage to our areas where, we, where I live, where people just put up fancier houses instead. So how does that actually hurt the tax base if they're just getting replaced by higher taxed real estate? Well, it brings that tax base up again, but is it just pushing it down the road? I mean, we know that inevitably there are going to be more storms and people say, look, they're just going to get destroyed again. You heard the mayor there in New Jersey say it. If it happens again, people may not come back. So then you have a higher tax base. You have more money to lose. You already have climate migration. That is people moving off the coast. So the more you keep rebuilding in these very dangerous areas, the more trouble you're going to have, the more expense you're going to have down the road. All right. It's a huge deal for sure there on the real estate side of things. Diana Olick, thank you very much. We appreciate it. On deck for the show here, investors gearing up for that critical CPI report set for release in just over two hours. City's Stephen Whiting lays out why the Fed's response could do real damage to the markets. More than it's already done. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Here's what's on the agenda on Wall Street today. 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, we're going to get initial jobless claims and, of course, that key consumer price index report. Also keeping an eye out for earnings from BlackRock, Delta Airlines, Walgreens, Boots Alliance, and Domino's Pizza, amongst others, all out before the opening bell. Also watching, of course, the Fed. Atlanta Bank President Rafael Bostic is set to speak early this afternoon. So let's get another check on futures as the countdown to the CPI report continues right now. Futures indicating what will be a 150-point rise for the Dow at the opening bell. The S&P implied higher by 18 and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 29, 30 points. Joining me now is Stephen Whiting, the chief investment strategist and chief economist at Citi Global Wealth Investments. Stephen, I valued our conversations over the years because we always have so much to talk about, but even more so these days. So let's just start with a very broad question from your mind. Are the markets right now in a good position, given what we know is going to come from the Fed and given what we expect from the CPI report later on today? I don't think markets are in a good position for the next couple of quarters, uh, whether they could rally on a, a decent CPI report or not is to be seen. I think that there's an immense short base in the equity market, in fixed income markets, and in currency markets. Uh, we, uh, again, have seen rallies like we did from June through August. We could see rallies again. Uh, but the monetary policy tightening, the tightening that is still to come, and the economic consequences, which take time and have not been given a moment uh, to really catch up to the reality um, of this policy uh, will still unfold and still impact markets into the early part of the coming year until there is some real pivot. So, so Stephen, we spoke with former Atlanta Fed President uh, uh, Dennis Lockhart just earlier in the show, and, and he expects the Fed to maybe be able to take a pause in the first half of next year to assess what's happened. This has no doubt been one of the most aggressive interest rate hiking 
campaigns, if you will, since going back to the Volcker days. What kind of damage really can be done to this economy? It, it could be pretty severe, could it not? Well, look, I would view the outlook as likely having about 2 million job losses for the U.S., the unemployment rate rising above 5% over the course of next year, even if the Federal Reserve were to limit additional rate hikes from here. Think about what's happened. Mortgage purchase application volumes are off 50%. Home sales have already fallen 35%. Housing job losses have been zero. The pace of construction right now is really uh, where we were when the sales pace was higher and mortgage rates were lower. Now, that's one micro example, just to understand that it takes time. It's planning a house, building a house is 12 months. This is one that that we easily understand. The fact that there are uh, very strong impacts on trade, which is impacting, again, marketing, sales, finance positions, you know, throughout the economy, this takes time. In the past, it has, and it's going to right now. It might happen a little bit faster. And when I said, by the way, that, you know, when the Fed pivots, when ultimately they react to job losses, that doesn't mean that the economy has stopped falling and then some reaction to that is still there for many sensitive asset prices. Many, uh, again, industrial and materials, these types of companies and these types of sectors, again, just the fact that the Fed will, will not tighten further at some point is not going to mean that they won't react to that further deterioration in the economy for a time. So if, if that's the case, Stephen, the way that that investors or traders, I mean, there's a dis- dis- distinction between the two, for sure, based upon tactical and strategic moves with money. How exactly then are you advising clients to position, given that economic outlook, that could be the better part of next year in, in, in that negative zone? Well, look, markets have never bottomed when we haven't even begun a recession. If a recession is coming, again, if it's a false warning, we would love that. Uh, But when uh, we actually have a recession, markets don't bottom before the recession even begins. But all this market timing, all of these things sort of ignores the long-term value of staying invested in the most innovative parts of the economy that ultimately drive long-term economic growth. For the meantime, though, you can swerve portfolios to durable sources of income. You know, we love the fact that we can put money to work in one to three year uh, U.S. fixed income markets and now get yields ranging from four to seven percent across a wide range of different risk categories, all investment grade. Uh, We have put a massive amount into U.S. bonds, uh, about a 12 percentage point uh, of portfolios, while still only having uh, a very small global overweight in fixed income, avoiding Europe avoiding Japan, these sorts of things, and international markets where the dollar has soared. We've uh, stayed underweight these international equities, swerving to pharmaceuticals, to staples, to companies that have the most durable dividends. This is just a defensive tilt in portfolios. But this is not to say that markets already haven't anticipated a significant downturn. I think that the larger part of the market correction is, in fact, over. All right. We've just got a few moments left, Stephen. What do we think about technology? It's it's led out of the previous, I don't know how many recessions. What happens to that tech trade? I, I just be, be be careful that, again, the earnings hits to some technology areas will come too, uh, and that will also impact those companies. But the idea that the only problem markets have is higher rates, right, which has impacted growth stocks more, I think it will be economic weakness, and it will probably be those less 
uh, economically sensitive um, technology companies that will bottom earlier. And that will, I think, likely come next year. All right. Stephen Whiting, great to get your thoughts, sir. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Markets are implied higher by roughly 150 points for the Dow right now. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. Big CPI report. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 